the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Today's guest is Dr. Richard Rutherford. Uh, his background is in orthopedics. He went and did his residency at Duke University Hospital. Fellowship trained at Colorado Joint Replacement in Denver, Colorado, and back to my neck of the woods where he's practicing. Dr. Rutherford, welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. As way of a background, what led you to the practice of orthopedics? Well, it was definitely not a straight line for me. Uh, I actually started out as a stockbroker in Raleigh and uh, liked helping people, but wanted to do something different. So worked as an anesthesia tech at night at Wake Med, which is a busy trauma center and kind of fell in love with the operating room and, and kind of the excitement and uh, decided to go back to med school and sort of gravitated into orthopedic surgery because of the patients and the people who work in orthopedics. We're lucky in orthopedic surgery that a lot of the problems we treat, we can make better. So it makes it very gratifying. For that same reason, that's sort of how I gravitated into total joints. For In most cases, we're able to take people and make them better. Oh yeah. If, if you're very much a goal-oriented person like I am, orthopedics is the way to go. You do something and they get better. I like that a lot. So what I was hoping we could talk about today uh, is something that you don't want to see in clinic, but I think we need to talk about it. The suspected infection of total knee or total hip. So what I'd like to do is talk about the etiology, workup, and treatments. And the goal would be to help our listeners develop a more accurate diagnosis and form a treatment plan. To start off with, what would be some risk factors for a patient to develop a total joint infection, not only when you're considering doing the surgery in the preoperative period, but postoperatively uh, after the surgery? Absolutely. And, you know, I would, would just want to emphasize that it's this is a really important topic. I mean, it's really one of the toughest problems we face in knee and hip replacement. And it's if you take a person and, and, and do a total joint, it becomes infected. That That's one way that you can make them worse. So definitely it kind of starts in the clinic. And when you're evaluating patients preoperatively, patients with uncontrolled diabetes. So, you know, the hemoglobin A1C over 7.5 would be at higher risk of infection. Patients with a, a large soft tissue envelope in the area that you're going to operate, you know, or with a BMI over 40. Patients with end-stage renal disease or malnutrition and smokers, are kind of, those are some of the preoperative factors. And uh, postoperatively, we've noticed, uh, they've researched that patients who require a blood transfusion can actually be at a higher risk of an infection postoperatively. Certainly, uh, anybody with a prolonged surgical time you know, that's uh, added uh, risk for inoculation at the time of surgery. And uh, anybody with a wound healing problem, uh, that, you know, that's the body's number one defense against infection. So um, checking on patients in clinic, that's, uh, that's one way for a, a patient to get an infection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's part of the PA's job doing the pre-op. In our clinic, we don't really have the the medical doc that's doing this. So it's very important that you think about all this and ask these questions you know, the team approach, make sure that, you know, we don't put somebody in there that, that's high risk if we can avoid it. If we talk about the infection itself, what are some of the common bacteria in an infected joint and what might be some quote-unquote oddball microorganisms? The most common would be the skin flora. So those are, you know, the most commonly um, staph species, C. acnes and, and strep. Uh, so those would be the most common organisms encountered. And then you know, if, if you have somebody who you suspect is infected, but you've never been able to culture something, 
it's when you need to start thinking, you know, for unusual organisms like fungus, acid fast bacteria, and, and things like that. So definitely the staph species would be your most common organisms encountered there. Could you classify an infected joint in acute chronic? And is there a difference between, you know, an acute and chronic infection? How does that look? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, I think they're still debating the precise definition of what what the appropriate time point should be for what distinguishes an acute and a chronic infection. But the the concept that's important is that the bacteria are able to establish a biofilm in the setting of a chronic infection. And, And what a biofilm is, is basically it's a protective layer that they're able to reside in on on the prosthetic surface, metal or plastic in the in the joint. And it makes it much more difficult to treat. Most people I think would agree an infection that occurs within four weeks of the index operation or you know within four weeks of the inciting event if it's an abscessed tooth that seeded a hematogenous infection. Most people would agree that that's an acute infection and that you you stand a chance at treating it with with an irrigation and debridement and retaining the parts. Now, that the distinction is important because in a chronic setting, we think that your chances of success in just doing a debridement are really abysmal. So, you know, 40, 50 percent or, or much, much less. And in those settings, the treatment is to remove the, the prosthesis because it's it's difficult or impossible to actually remove the organisms from the prosthetic joint. So that's that's the main reason that the distinction between an acute and a chronic infection would be important. So when you first see a patient and you think there may be an infected total joint, what points in the history and physical exam make you think infection versus some other etiology? I think an important point that was drilled into me early in my training was you should always have it in the back of your head as a reason why somebody could have could have a painful total joint. And it, it's really funny what patients will and won't tell you. Sometimes you have to ask them six different ways about whether or not there's a history of infection, and, and they might not volunteer the information. So, you you know, you ask, did they have any difficulties with wound healing after the surgery? Did anybody ever place them on extended antibiotics? Uh, was there ever any prolonged drainage? You know, and you, you just have to kind of get really be thorough in your history taking to try to pick up on that. And, and you know, ultimately, um, if you have a painful total joint that you think might need an operation, even if there's nothing in the history indicating infection, it's still prudent to at least check screening inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP just to eliminate it as a possibility. Yeah, I understand about trying to get the right question. Yeah. If we're looking at an infected joint versus aseptic loosening, just the components get loose and it's not infection, are there differences that we might want to look at or think about? Well, I mean, I I think it's very difficult to distinguish between the two based on radiographs alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly, if you you had a well-functioning total joint that deteriorated rapidly, infection might rise kind of uh, uh, on your differential. But it's very difficult to distinguish between the two based on x-rays alone. And I think you'd be depending on physical exam and history. You know, certainly some of the things I I didn't mention before in terms of risk factors, somebody who's had multiple prior surgeries before their index total joint, that's somebody you should have a higher index of suspicion for, you know, possibly harboring a a, a low-lying or indolent infection. And somebody with a prior history of, you know, MRSA colonization or something like that, or or MRSA infections elsewhere in their body would be somebody you should be a little bit more suspicious about. 
Mm -hmm. So you had mentioned the x-rays in a couple of labs. Let's say we're, we're suspecting a uh, total joint infection. We want to start a work, workup. What's your algorithm or how do you go about working that up? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, ESR and CRP are great screening tests. Um, if you're suspicious, you should go ahead and get data. And, you know, we don't have a perfect test yet, but it's sort of a, a combination of diagnostic criteria currently, but that has to include an aspiration of the joint. So that's, you know, I, I, I would want to stress that if you're ever... Mm -hmm evaluating someone with a joint replacement and you're not sure what's going on, it, it's always a good idea to get data from the joint with an aspiration. And that should be sent for a cell count with differential and gram stain and culture. Mm -hmm. Let's say we've done the workup and we've determined that there's an infection, there's some component loosening and surgeries required. Can you explain the differences and, and what your reasoning is, either a poly exchanged or maybe a stage revision or even a resection arthroplasty? How, how do you make the choices? What, how do you decide what to do? So, so good question. And, and, you know, to be honest, these are questions that really the orthopedic community as a whole, we don't have great answers yet. So, you know, in general, what most people in, in the U.S. will do for an acute infection, you know, we talked about usually that's in the first four weeks, debridement and component retention. You know, your chances of success are going to depend on how healthy the patient is. On host factors, it's going to depend on the, the organism. So your chances will go down with a resistant organism like MRSA, and they might go up with a organism like strep that's more susceptible to antibiotic therapy. Mm -hmm. But the, the timing is is critical in whether or not you could you'd consider the debridement alone. For a chronic infection, the gold standard in the U.S. currently is a two-stage treatment. So that's, you know, one, the first stage is removal and debridement. And uh, usually in the U.S., it's placement of an antibiotic spacer and then confirming that the infection has been cleared prior to the second stage, which would be reimplantation. And then there are certain patients in who, you know, somebody who, for instance, may have already failed a two-stage exchange or um, a patient whose soft tissue envelope really does not permit a reconstruction or for them to heal a wound. And, and those are pati patients in whom you might consider either amputation or a resection arthroplasty, you know, or in the hip, a girdle stone procedure, and the knee, maybe a, a knee fusion. So those are, you know, sort of salvage operations. Right. And obviously that last case, uh, my next question was the outcomes of patients who undergo these procedures. The last case is where you don't want to be unless you have to, but are there good results? The success of the two-stage treatment is about 90%. You really can't emphasize enough to patients when discussing with them really how life-changing it is. You know, this is months out of their life and, and, and there really is some morbidity associated with that. They're, you know, they're going to be on strong IV antibiotics that do have side effects. They're really not going to be mobile. Uh, even if you treat them with a very functional spacer, which is something else we're trying to figure out what's, you know, for patients in whom we, we treat them with a two-stage treatment, what's the best treatment while they're awaiting the reimplantation? And that's something, again, you know, we, we don't have a definite answer. There's a thought that you're going to permit more mobility with a more functional articulating spacer that's more similar to a, to a total knee or a total hip, and that it keeps the tissues pliable and kind of facilitates the second stage. But for certain patients who have severe wound healing problems, those are patients we think might be better treated in a static spacer to kind of 
rest the soft tissues prior to the second stage. This is all great information. It's always a challenge when you see, when you're a PA and you're in clinic and you have a patient come in, you know, what do I do? Where do I go? And you can always ask, but it's good to have a good idea and feel more comfortable with how to manage this. Do you maybe have a case study, something you'd like to share, something that we might see in clinic when someone presents? I can give you some details on the case I've been treating recently. So it's a uh, 69-year-old female with uh, end-stage medial compartment knee arthritis. She had uh, failed conservative treatments in the form of uh, cortisone injections and visco supplementation, as well as NSAIDs. And uh, she had a, a primary uh, total knee arthroplasty done over the summer, did well initially, but had difficulty with wound healing. She had a very atrophic uh, skin envelope. And so her, her difficulty started with some persistent drainage that we noted at her two-week post-op visit. And so kind of right away got my attention. And in, in my hands, if a, if a patient uh, hasn't healed the wound at two weeks. If there's any drainage at that point, then we treat it as infection and we take them for a formal irrigation and debridement with closure. So that patient, we went ahead and obtained inflammatory markers, which were normal actually at that point, and uh, took her for an IND. At the time of the operation, her knee was actually in very good condition, except for the kind of macerated skin at the distal aspect of her incision, which is an area some patients have trouble with. And uh, so at that time, you know, in the acute period, we performed uh, an irrigation debridement and liner exchange. Now, that's a patient I had a high suspicion because of the wound problem. Uh, one of the fellows that trained me used to say a, a highway out is a highway in. And so if the, if the wound hasn't healed, that's definitely a, an opportunity for the, the wound to become colonized and cause an infection. And so this patient did eventually grow out staph species, staph lugdunensis, which is one of the staph species that can live on the skin. That patient underwent a six-week course of IV treatment. Unfortunately, when we stopped her antibiotics after that period, she began to have more pain. And so uh, more pain, more swelling. And obviously with her history, we were, we were concerned uh, that she had a recurrence. After her antibiotic holiday, we aspirated the knee and, and did grow the same organism. The discussion was had with her, you know, really, we, we've tried debridement and component retention. And in her case, the next step was to, to perform a two-stage uh, procedure. And we had the discussion that we just had about it. We've identified the organism. We think this has a high chance of success, but it's, it's a lot of time and a major impact on her life to get this treated. Yeah, it's a tough conversation to have with someone, I'm, I'm sure. Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for all this. One last question. Do you have any resources or uh, any recommended further reading on joint arthroplasty infections and treatments that our listeners might benefit from? I mean, absolutely. A lot of my colleagues in knee and hip replacement have done great research and they've, they've put together some great talks on these topics. So uh, the Journal of Arthroplasty is a, is a great just general resource for questions about knee and hip replacement in general, but there's a lot of current research and review articles on these topics accessible through the Journal of Arthroplasty. The Yellow Journal for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is another source for just some broad information on these topics. And then uh, some of the thought leaders in our field, a lot of their talks are available through UMedi, through YouTube. That's a great way to stay current on, you know, what what are the current thoughts and what are the what are the what are the outcomes of some of the trials that they're performing to try to determine how to how to treat these difficult patients. So I want to emphasize, you know, it can be a very difficult question to determine if a 
if a joint is infected or not. So there, there are actually uh, some published criteria to help guide this diagnosis. So it's the MSIS criteria has been published and is a resource to help people, you know, make this difficult diagnosis. So that's another resource I would point to. Mm-hmm. Great information. Very good. Doctor, thank you for your time today. I know you've been very busy and just finished an add-on emergent case before you came on. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. This is great. And I hope I can bring you back. There's a lot with total joints that we can cover. Uh, So I hope I can bring you back and we can talk some more. Well, I'd be glad to do it. And uh, thanks very much for having me on. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter.